Just a few years ago, Christianity Today magazine reported that modern Christian persecution worldwide hit an all-time high for a third year in a row. This year, a World Watch List reported that the number of persecuted Christians has increased since then by 60%. 340 million Christians, that's one in eight Christians, face what they deemed as high levels of persecution and discrimination simply because of their faith. In every generation, the Lord raises up individuals to represent him. Sometimes those representatives stand alone. Do you have that kind of courage? Noah was called to represent God in his culture, and he stood alone. Noah was more than just a righteous man. According to 2 Peter 2.5, he was a preacher of righteousness, and he preached to an exceedingly wicked generation. John Wesley wrote, It's easy to be religious when religion's in fashion, but it's an evidence of strong faith to swim against the stream and to appear for God when no one else does. In Noah's case, with the possible exception of his wife and three sons, there was literally no one else, not a single soul. In recent years, the region where I live has been among the four least Bible-minded cities in the United States. And that means that less than 10% of the people in this area say they read the Bible even once in a typical week or have any strong confidence that the Bible's principles are even accurate. Unless revival occurs, it may not be long before believers in some parts of North America or their children will be standing alone. Genesis 6 follows the generations of two different spiritual lines of humanity. The Canaanites lived with their fists in God's face, while the Sethites, at least some of them, walked with God. The last Sethites named in Genesis 5 are Noah and his three sons. Chapter 6 begins by introducing the culture in which they lived. When human beings began to increase in number on earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were, uh, were beautiful, daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. From the statement that human beings were increasing in number, we may possibly surmise the passage of quite a bit of time since creation, the number of years calculated by adding the ages of those in Genesis 5 in that genealogy being the very minimum. Many Old Testament genealogies are almost certainly representative of the total number of a man's descendants, having been shortened and then organized in a way that made the list more memorable. But it was probably over this very long period of human population growth that the depravity described in Genesis 6 developed. <clears throat> now, verse 2 gives one of the reasons or an evidence of why the population at large became so evil. The sons of God married the daughters of men who bore them children. The meaning of the terms sons of God and daughters of men isn't clarified in the text, so not all Bible scholars interpret them in the same way. There are three main views 
that have existed throughout Christian history. And you should know that all of these have respected conservative scholars who support them. One esteemed Old Testament expert has given helpful names to these theories. The first he's named the cosmologically mixed race theory. Now, according to this view, <clears throat> the sons of God are fallen angels, and the daughters of men are just ordinary human women. Angels and humans are certainly a mix of angels and, and humans, would certainly represent a cosmological mix. Support for this theory comes from a non-canonical book of the Bible known as First Enoch. It was written about 200 years after the time of Christ. And that book relates a story of 200 angels marrying beautiful human wives and their offspring being giants. Now Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2.4 tell us that God put sinful angels who had abandoned their proper dwelling, that's the quote, they'd abandoned their proper dwelling, in chains of darkness holding them for judgment. <clears throat> so supporters of this cosmologically mixed race view usually believe that those verses in our New Testament about fallen angels refer to the sons of God in Genesis 6. Furthermore, the term sons of God appears three times in the book of Job, and in all three instances, it refers to angels. But some of the problems with this theory <clears throat> include the fact that Jesus said angels don't marry. That's in Mark 12, 25. Also, the idea of angels and humans intermarrying, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And then in the Genesis 6 account, only human beings and not angels were punished by God. <clears throat> now, the second theory has been nicknamed the religiously mixed race theory. This theory suggests the sons of God were individuals from the godly line of Seth, while the daughters of men were descendants from the ungodly line of Cain. Uh, contextually, this fits very well. This theory fits well, since Genesis 4 and 5 do describe two very different lines of humanity, a godly one and an ungodly one. But one of the problems with this theory is that Genesis 6-4 indicates that the resulting race was in some way outstanding. Supporters of the view sometimes conclude it was the wickedness of their offspring that was great. Their wickedness. They were, in that way, outstanding, outstandingly wicked. Though that conclusion fits well with the depravity described in Genesis 6, it kind of raises the question of why children from unequally yoked, you know, religiously mixed marriages, why would they be more exceptionally wicked than the offspring of, say, two non-believing parents? So the third theory is called the sociologically mixed race theory. Now, this theory claims that the sons of God were evil, possibly even demon-possessed, despotic human lords, and the daughters of men were beautiful women from the general populace. Some of the most ancient translations actually render the phrase sons of God as sons of nobles. Also, historically, in ancient times, even into the Roman Empire, Pagan rulers claimed to be gods. These power-hungry men were eager to build their reputations and extend their jurisdiction. So according to this theory, the phrase they married any of them they chose implies polygamy, specifically 
the building of harems. Proponents of this view say that the reference to giants is pointing to their political dominance. On that basis, they were men of renown. If these violent, oppressive overlords had been demon-possessed, it, it would further explain the terrible depravity of Noah's generation. Now, there's another noteworthy idea that I should mention. It, it combines aspects of the other views and revolves around the ancient cultural and religious practice of sacred prostitution, with the sons of God being fallen angels who possessed ancient cultic priests and their ritualistic marriages to daughters of men. Ancient sacred prostitution, you may know, is, is based on the popular notion, uh, popular in that day, of gods and humans mixing. They believe that their sexual union pleased the gods. Thus, the gods, that's the cultic priests, had sex with temple prostitutes. And the offspring of such union would have been considered superior in that they were believed by the people in that day of actually being children of the gods. Now, before we move on, this is a good place to say that the exact nature and origin of the Nephilim mentioned in verse 4 is also in many ways mysterious. They're only mentioned one other place in the Bible. That's in Numbers 13.33. And according to that passage, hundreds of years after the flood, Israelite spies reported that Nephilim were living in the land of Canaan, the land they hoped to overtake. Now, since the Nephilim of Genesis 6 couldn't have survived the flood, the Israelites' description of these people as descending from Nephilim it must actually mean that they were in some way like Nephilim, either because of their large physical stature or because they were princes, landlords, and great men of their day, or because of their reputation as children of the gods. But notice that while the culture of Noah's day considered these Nephilim to be renowned, mighty men, God judged them as depraved. Now let's look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. They are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Because of mankind's depravity, the Lord decreed he would restrict their days to 120 years. But what exactly does that mean? Well, some believe the 120 years refers to a shortened lifespan of humans. And we do see that evidenced in the genealogical record of Genesis 11. But 120 years may also have been the length of time God determined to remain patient until he brought the judgment by flood. 120 years until the flood. And in that case, Noah's generation would have had 120 years to listen to his message of repentance. Regardless of the meaning, God was incredibly patient for a long time, not wanting any to perish. Jude 14 and 15 tell us that Enoch also prophesied leading up to this time. Well, in Genesis 6, we have a picture of the complete breakdown of society through personal wickedness. Verse 5 indicates that the corruption of man extended through the entire human race thoroughly infecting every mind and heart. Human depravity results from the sinful nature 
with which all people since Adam and Eve have been born. Depravity is the moral corruption that results from turning our backs on God. Now, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, but simply that all people are bad by nature. Romans 1 and 2 explain that apart from God's intervening grace, human beings suppress the truth about God that's evident in creation and in each of our consciences. The flood wasn't God's ultimate solution to man's to human depravity and to the sin nature. The flood merely restrained the influence of evil. The promised deliverer was God's solution. We'll only know complete freedom from the depraved nature when we've put our faith in this deliverer, Jesus Christ, and when by faith, by death, or by translation at Jesus' return, we've left our physical bodies behind. Well, verse 6 says that the Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth and that his heart was deeply troubled. Now, the word regret is sometimes translated relent, repent, or grieve. All of these words are anthropomorphisms. That is, they use a human quality or term to explain something, although inadequately, about God's nature. The implication of God's regret isn't that his character changed. The Bible teaches that God's an unchanging. The point is that God responds to our actions with emotion and passion. His heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord decided to wipe the human race and all other living creatures from the earth. Why the animals? Well, I suppose the animals were involved in the fall in the sense that they were under mankind's rule. Now, although the Bible tells us of many of God's judgments on individuals and groups of people, some of which, like this, included acts of nature, the flood was unique in that it was the only general judgment on mankind and will be until the end of human history. Why would God do something so drastic? Well, one reason was that drastic circumstances called for drastic action. The flood was simply the most effective way of purging the world. It allowed God to start again, not because his plan had failed, but because until his plan was fulfilled in Christ. The floods also served as a symbol of baptism for New Testament believers and as God's reminder to people in every subsequent generation that future and final judgment awaits us. You know, the flood was nothing more than what every generation has deserved. The wages of sin is death. There was one lone exception to the thorough corruption on earth. Noah alone found favor with God. Only one person on the entire planet. Apparently, even the other descendants of Seth had wandered from their faith. Noah lived in a depraved culture, and our present-day culture is going downhill faster than an Olympic skier. Oh. 
God knows the human heart. He's not surprised by the direction people go, but it grieves him terribly. You know, grief is a love word. We don't grieve over things we care little for. Jesus demonstrated God's attitude towards sinners. Although he was grieved by their sins, Matthew eleven nineteen says he was the sinner's friend. So this brings us to our first principle. Like God, we mustn't be shocked, but grieved by the behavior of non-believers. We mustn't be shocked, but grieved by it. Our family once had a mentally ill relative living with us. And the person made sinful choices that, to be frank, greatly complicated our lives, relationally, financially, occupationally, even legally. It was challenging. If I hadn't known it before, I certainly learned that when we become involved with hurting difficult people, at least on some occasions, we're going to be taken advantage of. And I admit, at times, I felt so angry. But the experience also taught me not to be shocked by what sinners do. Despite our frustration, our family determined to love this person with God's love. And it was only by his love that we could do this. It was a time of personal growth for each of us as we navigated daily decisions and prayed for wisdom to know how to love wisely. I can't help but wonder what kind of a relationship Noah had with his neighbors. How does one find favor in God's eyes while living in a thoroughly depraved world? I believe Noah must have had a great deal of opportunity to learn to love wisely. You know, how to speak truth without growing angry. How to lend help without being shocked when taken advantage of. And how to be of service without becoming ensnared by the sins of those he befriended. You know as well as I do that in some places today, Christians have earned the reputation of being intolerant, and not because of an appropriate hatred of sin, but because of their unkind attitude towards sinners. How is your attitude toward certain kinds of sinners reflected in the way you speak about them? Not just publicly, but also in private. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Their sin grieves him, but it doesn't shock him. If we're to represent him well in our culture, that has to be our attitude as well. <clears throat> well, although God's heart was grieved over mankind's condition, beginning in verse 9, <clears throat> our attention is turned to the one man who found favor in God's eyes. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. This verse begins a new Toledoth, remember that word, in Genesis, the account of Noah and his family. And the contrast between Noah and his generation couldn't be sharper. The first thing we're told is that Noah was righteous. This is the first time that the term righteous appears in the scriptures. What does it mean? Was Noah perfect? 
No, only God's truly perfect. When the Bible speaks of a person as righteous, it's not implying moral perfection, but a person's acceptance of God's standard as the model by which they attempt to live their lives. With respect to our ability to actually keep this standard, the prophet Isaiah said that because of the impact sins had on us, even our best efforts fall so pathetically short of God's standard that they appear as filth to him. The Bible's clear that we're only made righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus. His death was a substitute for our own. He paid the penalty we owe for sins. But Christ also lived a righteous life. And just as his death was a substitute, was a substitute for ours, Christ's life also becomes a substitute for our own. Jesus' death wipes away the debt we owe, but Jesus' perfect life is the reason God credits righteousness to our account. The moment we put our faith in Christ as Savior, we move from being burdened with a debt too great to ever repay to being wealthy beyond our wildest imagination. Noah clearly accepted God's standard as the one by which he would attempt to live. And impressive as his actions were, they didn't earn him righteousness. He was made righteous by his faith. His actions, his preaching, and his building of the ark were simply evidences of that faith. Now, in addition to being righteous, we read that Noah was blameless among the people of his day. Like God's people in every age, Noah represented God. So his reputation was very important, and he surely guarded it scrupulously. So should we. Noah's preaching was almost certainly mocked and was most definitely rejected by his generation, who died in the flood. Nevertheless, his blameless reputation speaks to the fact that there was nothing in his words or behavior for which his neighbors could legitimately criticize him. Likewise, others may think and speak poorly of us, but it should never be because we've given them any reason to do so. <clears throat> Third, we're told that Noah walked faithfully with God. Now, in the last lesson, we learned that Enoch walked with God. And in the garden, and later in the land of Eden, where God also seemed to have a special presence, walking with God may have been a physical possibility. After the flood, this doesn't appear to be the case again, until the time in which Christ became flesh and made his dwelling with human beings. In every age, God's own are still to walk with him. For many years, one of my friends and I walked daily for exercise. And before long, as you can imagine, we knew one another pretty well. I would say intimately. Walking with God, it presumes obedience, but it implies far more than just outward compliance. It implies this same kind of intimacy I found with my friend, and even deeper. Practically speaking, this requires careful examination of God's word and ongoing conversations with him. Those with whom we spend the most time certainly know us and influence us the most, don't they? So with whom do you walk and talk the most? Well, the statements about Noah's righteousness, blamelessness, and walk with God 
They not only point out the vast difference between Noah and his culture, they also explain Noah's ability to stand alone as God's representative in the evilest of times. One day, God told Noah clearly of his plans to destroy the earth by flood. Based on Genesis 2, 5, and 6, many have suggested that until the time of the flood, the earth had never seen rain. They speculate that prior to their flood, a type of mist from waters below and above the earth covered it, creating a, a tropical kind of environment. And if that's true, that no living person had ever seen rain up to that time, huh, the idea of constructing an ark must have seemed preposterous to Noah and those around him. Those who watched him build probably questioned his sanity. Such a remarkable structure, designed for such a strange purpose, that must have become known far and wide. <clears throat> and from what we're told about the spiritual condition of Noah's generation, it's fairly safe to assume that Noah was despised and ridiculed. If the 120 years refer to the time between God's proclamation and the coming of the flood, it's possible, think of this, it's possible that Noah spent the entire time constructing the ark. It was mammoth. The size is given here in cubits. A cubit was roughly the length from a man's elbow to the end of his middle finger, about 18 inches. So that means the vessel would have measured 450 feet in length, one and a half football fields, 75 feet in width, and 45 feet in height. That's three stories with plenty of headroom for the taller animals. A single exterior door was on the side. And although it's not designated, there may have been a corridor down the center of the boat with rooms on each side. The details about the roof are vague, but it seems a space of about one cubit, about 18 inches, was allowed between the roof and the sides for light and for fresh air. Later, God gave more specific instructions about the animals, but at this time, which may have been long before the animals needed to come start coming to Noah, the general ins the instructions about the animals were just general. Noah was also told to begin collecting and storing food for his family and all the animals. That was a monumental task in itself. While every other living creature on earth would perish, God covenanted to protect Noah and his family. His covenant was his agreement, his promise. That assurance was certainly what Noah needed to hear in light of the terrible catastrophe God foretold. The covenant isn't fully explained until after the flood, but going into it, all Noah has is God's promise that he and his family would pass through the divine judgment unscathed. Genesis 6 ends with the amazing statement that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I'm so challenged by that statement. Noah faithfully represented God by completing each of the tasks he'd been given. Surely that included his preaching and his building of the ark. They were both powerful warnings to his generation. And that brings us to the next principle. This is so important. We represent God well 
by remaining faithful in every assignment he gives us. That's how you can represent God well today, by remaining faithful in every assignment he gives you. What are those assignments? What assignments has he given you? Often, those assignments can feel overwhelming. They may require a lot of hard work and personal sacrifice. I'm certain Noah felt overwhelmed at the prospects of constructing something the size of the ark and preaching to a generation that was so terribly wicked. Your challenge may be raising children to love God in a godless culture. That's a big assignment. He may call you to move to a faraway place, or he may ask you to just remain faithful in some very monotonous job right where you are. Both of these are big assignments. Your assignment may involve having cancer or representing while enduring some other hardship. Our God-ordained assignments are impossible to complete on our own. Friends, we are not gifted enough. We are not faithful enough. His assignments are designed to force us to rely on him. So whatever your assignment may be, it's a God-ordained opportunity for you to represent him well in our culture. Most of us can thank God that we'll never feel quite as alone as Noah surely felt in his assignment. But there may be a time and a place where you will stand entirely alone for him. Whether we're alone or have much support, one thing is certain. The God who's called you to represent him will equip you to do it. Lord, we pray for the sake of your name and for your glory, find us faithful. We, like Noah, want to represent you well in our generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is that the sound of rain? It's coming, and I can't wait to tell you more about that ark next week. <laughs>